Fall is about football, and, and some of you are deeply, deeply engaged in football. I mean, today, <laughs> and, and, and some not as, not as much, you know. Um, so, so today we have, uh, the, big, the big news today is we have the biggest point spread ever in the history of the NFL. The Denver Broncos, who are playing exceptionally well, are playing the Jacksonville Jaguars, or if you live in Jacksonville, they call them the Jaguars, and they're horrible. And so we're going to find out today when extraordinarily horrible meets extraordinarily good what happens. And uh, we're going to see that. But here's the thing, is that whether you care about that one way or not, you probably can't affect the outcome all that much, right? Just by watching. Now, I can. I've just discovered this this weekend again. I flipped on the Dodgers Thursday night. It was two to two. And I watched the rest of that game Thursday night well into extra innings. I watched all of yesterday's game since I turned the Dodgers on. They have not scored since I turned them on. And you think that sample size is too small. Last night, Wendy and I went to see uh, Zeus Pacific play football. I'm an alum. She works there still. Our daughter goes there. It was homecoming, so I thought, hey, we'll go. Um, first half, horrible. Badly played. APU was way behind. They were behind 23-3 to at halftime. It had taken forever. I had something to do today. So I, we went home. Second half, APU scored while we were at home. APU came back and scored 41 points in the second half, <laughs> including 31 in the fourth quarter to win 44 to 36. While well, I was gone. <laughs> so be careful around me right now. So... But the idea of, of the whole game on thing is the games go on whether we watch them or not, except for the game that really matters, the life that we are living, the one that God has called us to live. And whether we think we're in the game or not, we are. And whether we're interested in Jesus and the world, the world and Jesus are interested in us. And so what we're trying to do is say whether you think you're, whether you're interested or not, you are in this game. And because you're in this game, there are a number of things that if we do them well, if we do them gracefully, if we do them empowered by the Lord, we are just going to be much better off and we're going to be a much better part of the team. We're going to, to be able to bless one another and, and serve the kingdom that much better. And so we've been talking about these things. We've talked about the way that worship plays, or the role that worship plays in that, of allowing the, the Bible to be a place in your life where God can speak to you through the Bible. The importance of prayer and, and just laying your, your concerns before the Lord and depending on Him in the midst of that. A couple of weeks ago, Nate talked to us about generosity and the way that if you can practice that discipline, it just opens up all kinds of things in your life and, and allows God to bless you and bless others along the way. And then last week, John talked with us about the idea of community, about how what we do here as God's people is never just done on our own, that when we do it together, it's far more powerful and better. And, and really, it just doesn't happen if we try to do it on our own. Well, today, we're going to move on to another topic, one called holiness. Now, that one's a little harder to get a hold of. Before first service, I was talking to Carl. He says, so, what are you preaching on? It's one of our older guys. And the Christian thing is still kind of new to him. And he says, what are you preaching on? Holiness. He looks at me and says, ah, oh, it's one of those Christian words, right? I said, yeah, yeah, it is. It is. You know, every discipline has its technical language. It has words that are sort of a shorthand for a whole big idea. 
And holiness is one of those. Now, holiness is the general idea. The actual practice of holiness, see if this helps, is called sanctification. Another word you don't use a whole lot, right? Um, Nate used it a couple weeks ago, and no one cringed, so I thought I could use it today. But it's the idea of how God transforms our lives and how God remakes us. Um, It comes from a passage in Leviticus, Leviticus 19, that says this. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Okay. That doesn't explain a lot, does it? Be holy because I'm holy. Okay, but what do you mean by holy? Where's this going? I, I, when I was a teacher, I'd assign papers, and, and I used to tell students when they were arguing like, about a character in a particular um, text, you know, if they're doing a character analysis, you have to assert what the character's about, support what you're saying, and then explain it. And, and I, would get, I would get these things that's like, you know, he's good because he's always doing good things, and that's why he's good. <laughs> and no. So we should be holy because God is holy, and because God is holy, we should be holy so... What do I do with that? Well, we're going to break that down today. We're going to talk about what it means to be holy. Now, it's a term we don't usually use, but, and it's something that's even easier to look at and watch happen than it is to define. But if we have to define it, it it's, it's basically a matter of how we live our lives. It's more about what we do than what we don't do. It's something we don't do individually. It's something we do together. And if we had to sum it up, it's, it's, it really shows up in what we trust and who we trust and how we love and who we love. That holiness if are matters of love and trust. And you put those things together and you begin to live the holy life that God wants us to live. So here's the, here's the thing, though, as we, uh, as we think about what it means to be holy. The, the first problem is, is the word doesn't mean what it sounds like. You know, it's, it's like pious, another word that church people use, has nothing to do with pies, right? And, and holiness has nothing to do with holes. It has nothing to do with Swiss cheese. It has nothing to do with that t-shirt that your wife keeps trying to throw out and you keep pulling it back. Holiness has nothing at all to do with holes. Again, it's, it's about the quality of how we live our lives. And we usually think in terms, if you have been around church and have heard this, normally it's, it's in terms of the things that we don't do. And there's some real value in this. I mean, I, I know enough of your stories, and I just know what people are like. And there are plenty of things in life that if we embrace them and embrace them in the wrong way, they hurt us that there are paths that you can go down, and if you go down that path, you're going to end up in a bad place. It's going to be bad for you and bad for the people around you. And so because of that, for a long time, Christians thought holiness was largely a long list of don't do this and don't do this and don't do this and don't do that. And usually it was coming from a good place because, uh, like, for instance, one of the ones was for a long time Christians would just say you can't drink ever. Well, when that happened... It wasn't that people were saying, wow, people enjoy that. We better stop that. We don't want people having a good time. It wasn't coming from that. It was coming from a time in American history where somebody like, I don't know, Keith Richards was temperate and mild. There was a point in American history where alcohol was just destroying everyone. And so Christians said, wow, that's bad. Maybe it would be better if we didn't drink at all. 
And so holiness often got identified with a bunch of things that we don't do. And it got identified largely with stuff that I don't do personally. And so Christians would often talk about it in terms of, you know, holiness is something that I have to embrace because of my personal walk with my Lord because I don't want to mess up my life. And you notice how that's all singular there. But holiness really, when you look at it in context, is collective. It's something that we do together, and it's something about the quality of the life that we live together as God's people. Here's the fuller context of that verse from Leviticus 19. So when the Lord said, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy, look at who he's talking to. The Lord says it to Moses, and he says, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. See, up to this point, normally holiness, something to do with the gods, was something that only like priests or an elite people would do. And one of the things that happens with Israel, as we'll see just in a minute, is that God extended that to everybody. And so it is the job of everyone, the entire assembly, to embrace holy living. In fact, this word assembly, if you were here last week as John was talking about community, you remember that John was saying the word church is kind of an unfortunate translation in the New Testament. The word really means gathering or congregation or assembly. This is the Hebrew Bible's equivalent of that word. It's the, sa- it's the same word. So it's talking to the whole community. It is our job collectively to live this life that is characterized by trust and by love. That is what holiness really looks like. And so, and so the Lord calls the entire community to do this. It's not distinctive. It's not just a few people. Now, what did this look like for Israel? Well, if you look at the rest of Exodus 19, and again, it's you could characterize it by matters of trust and matters of love. Some of them were matters of trust, like Israel was supposed to keep the Sabbath every week. And for them, Sabbath wasn't about resting. It was saying, in a world where everybody else is working seven days, I'm going to trust the Lord enough that I'm only going to work six. And I'm going to trust the Lord to fill this up. In a world where agriculture was not very developed, they would specifically, they're told in Leviticus 19, to not harvest the edges of their, of their land, to purposefully go without everything that they could. Why? Because that's how the poor people in Israel would eat. They could come in and harvest the stuff that was left over. So it's about trust and it's about love. And part of that love is, is deciding who matters in your life. That's the best definition of love is deciding who matters most in a particular situation. It's not what's happy for you. It's not what's tasteful. It's what matters most. And so Within Leviticus 19, you see them saying things like, you have to honor elderly people. You see them saying, you can't harvest your entire field. You have to leave some for the poor people. That slaves are treated far better in Israel than they are anywhere else. Um, so you see a, a variety of these things. And, and again, back to trust. You don't, you're, if you've ever read this, you don't cut off the edge of your beard and the front part of your hair, which is kind of weird. But the reason was is that the people around Israel, the Canaanites, um, thought that after you died, your bad spirit would come back and hassle people. So after people died, they would disguise themselves by shaving off their beards and marring their hair. The Israelites, the Lord is saying to his people, you can trust me on this. I'll take care of you. You don't need to disguise yourself from the dead. You can keep your beard. You can keep your hair and not have to disguise yourself. See, the idea of what the Lord was trying to do 
with the Israel, Israel, Israelites. And he wants to do with us is this image of what he develops in Exodus, which is kind of like his mission statement for his people. He says to them, even though the whole earth is mine, I can do whatever I want, but here's what I want. I want you guys, and it includes us today, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, that didn't mean that they dressed up in funny outfits. It didn't mean they did religious rituals all day and every day. What it meant was is that instead of just having an elite group of people whose job it was to kind of be go-betweens between God and everyone else, it was everyone's job. That the Lord wanted every one of his people to be his representative to people who didn't know him yet. And that holiness was not just something that was going to take place in a temple. It wasn't just something that was going to happen in some kind of religious ritual. But that holiness was going to happen in the everyday aspect of how people live their lives. It wasn't going to be how they did their sacrifices. It was going to be how they treated people. It wasn't going to be in burning incense or doing certain festivals. It was going to be how well were the poor cared for? How well were vulnerable people cared for? Did these people put other people's interests ahead of their own? That's what it looked like. And this gets picked up again in the New Testament. This just isn't an Old Testament thing. You see again in 1 Peter, it makes that same point. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. That's Peter's quoting that verse from Leviticus. And he goes on to say, he picks up the language from Exodus and goes on to say this. And he's saying this to us too, that we here, we are a chosen people. That you didn't stumble in here. That if you're a follower of Jesus, you didn't just stumble into this. You're here because God picked you. He chose you to make you his own. In fact, in the Exodus passage, he says that you are his treasured possession. You know, if something's on fire, what's the one thing you go in to get out? That's your treasured possession. And that's what each of us are to the Lord. And he has chosen us. And what he has chosen us for is to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, to be his special possession, so that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. There is a lot of darkness in our world. There's a lot of brokenness. There is a lot of hard stuff. And the good news of the gospel is like light in the darkness. And it is like a beautiful song in the midst of a mess. And what the Lord is calling us to do in calling us to live lives of holiness, this is how we live out being that kingdom of priests, of being a holy nation. And the best analogy that I can come up for it is it's learning to sing. And it's learning to sing a song that is actually more beautiful than anything the world can say. That holiness is not hiding from the bad things in the world. It's knowing the goodness of what it means to follow God so profoundly that we can sing a song that is better than anything that the world can offer. It's not hiding from the bad things of the world. It's experiencing the goodness of God in a profound and real enough way that the other stuff just, we kind of forget to think about it. So we're going to look at how this works. And, and this is something that's easier to just watch happening more than it is to define it. And so to get there, we're going to look at a passage that's a song. And it's Psalm 40. So if you want to follow along on your phone or your device or Dead Tree Bible, or you just want to read here, it'll be there. So Psalm 40 is, is, is anonymous. We don't, know, we don't know who wrote this. We don't know who said this. But in a very real sense, as we'll see in a minute, 
probably could have been any of us. Probably could have been any of us. Because you're going to see here that what this person experiences, at least the beginning of this, is common to all of us. And I hope where this psalmist ends up, where the voice in this psalm ends up, has been the experience for each of us. But in, in reading this, we're going to see what happens. This is as you embrace what God wants to build in your life, to build in that sense of holiness, to trust and love differently, and to learn to sing a song that's more beautiful than anyone else. It begins to look like this. It usually starts with us being aware of the fact that we're in trouble. And look at how this started. The psalmist says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire, and he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. I think all of us have experienced the point in our lives where we've gotten stuck. Now, maybe you're a germaphobe and you don't like hearing about mire and mud and slime. Some of you are like, where's the Purell? I'm freaking out right now. But it, it's, a, it's a really profound metaphor for how a lot of us have, have felt along the way. There's some point where either things that have been done to us or we've done things to ourselves where we are just stuck in a yucky place. And that has been the case. And I know for a lot of you, because I know a lot of your stories, you've reached that point where your feet are now on a solid place, that God has heard your cry. He has picked you up and put you in a much more solid place. And as a consequence of that, the psalm goes on to say something really cool. Because this person has been saved and taken out of the muddy place, God not only put him in a solid place to stand, but it says this, he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. And because of this, many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in Him. Isn't that awesome? If that could happen in our lives, to, to just realize that the Lord is willing and able to get us out of the places where we're stuck, to put us into a solid place, someplace where you can stand, where you're not worried about what's in your shoes or whether all that yucky stuff. You don't have to worry about that. And not only that, but God is going to give you a new song, something that is beautiful, something that is great, and that it is so great, as the psalmist says here, because of this, just like happened with Israel, where the Israelites, people were supposed to look at them and say, wow, there's something different and awesome about these people. I want to know something about their God. As would happen in the Christians in the New Testament, same thing can happen with us as well, that as we begin to learn to sing this new song that God wants to give us, that is more beautiful than this song that anything in the world has, that many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in Him as a consequence of that. So how do we get there? How does this happen? How does God build holiness into our lives? Well, the first step is to get unstuck, to let the Lord get us out of the mire. The second is, of course, to learn to sing beautifully. And the final, in case you missed it, we learn to do it together. Okay, so let's try to break this down. Getting unstuck, what does this look like? The first part is that you've got to wait. Most of the time when we are stuck, and I'm talking about things that we get stuck that are kind of within our range with God's help to address. Most of the time when we are stuck, it's usually a matter of trust that's gone wrong. That we didn't trust the Lord's guidance. We didn't trust the Lord's wisdom enough. And we said, I got this. 
I don't need to worry about this. I'll handle it myself. And we end up stuck in a place that's not very good, not very helpful, that doesn't work very well. And we are stuck because we didn't wait for the Lord's help. And so the first step is to, you know, if you've gone down the wrong path, the first step to getting on the right path is to go in reverse, go back the other way. Generally, you don't find your way back by going further in the wrong direction, you know? So the first step, the psalmist says, I waited patiently for the Lord. And a lot of times where we get ourselves in trouble emotionally and in bad habits, it's because we weren't patient enough to wait for the Lord's best. We decided, instead of waiting with open hands, we decided to grab for the first thing that we could do to make us feel strong, to make us feel on it, to make us feel in control. And so the first step to getting unstuck is to stop doing that, is to wait. Now, before we move on, I need to put in a parenthesis here. That, and, it, and it's really good that what we're talking about today correlates with the day where we're, we're talking about the ministry of Celebrate Recovery. And that is, there are things in our lives where we get stuck that are more beyond what we can do on our own in cooperation with the Lord. And probably beyond just what we can handle with, even within Christian fellowship. That there are, there are issues in our lives that are hurtful enough that sometimes they've been done to us and sometimes we've done them to ourselves. Sometimes there are patterns and habits that are destructive enough and have a grip on us enough that if you're just left to yourself and your own devices, as much as you try to allow the Lord to help you, probably not going to get there. And that's why things like Celebrate Recovery or even therapy with people who know and honor Jesus can be really helpful and really essential. And so as you're thinking about this, if there is some place where you are really stuck right now, um, it's important that you take the steps that you need to get unstuck. And for some of you, that may be becoming part of a Celebrate Recovery group. For some of you, that may be going into therapy. So parentheses over. But beyond those deep-seated things where we generally need somebody's kind of professional help to get us out, there are plenty of things where we get stuck and held back that are like mire and mush where we just can't go. The surface is bad. And those are things that we just didn't trust God enough and we allowed some bad stuff to develop in our lives. And in those, the first step is to wait. The second is to cry out and ask for God's help. It's just stunning to me how often so many of us, starting with me, will find ourselves and and we will lean into our difficulties. I've been some of our worship leaders have been using the phrase, we need to lean into worship. And I, I've been trying to figure out what that means. I think it means sing louder. But in any case, but what I do know what that means is there have been plenty of times where I've been stuck in a bad place. And instead of crying out to God for help, I lean into it. It's like, I spend all my energy. This is bad. How bad is it? Let me think how bad this is. Let me describe to myself how bad it is. If somebody wants to talk to me, let me just tell you how bad this is. And what I don't do is say, hey, Lord, I got here because I forgot to trust you. Can you help me with this? And yet that's the next step of getting unstuck is to crying, crying out. And the, and the word that's translated cry out here in Psalm 40 is often translated prayer in other places to pray, other places in the Old Testament. So, it's to, it's to realize you're, you, you may have got this place on your own, 
But you're not going to get out of it on your own. And the way that you do it is you cry out to God for his help. And amazingly, God will be there. And he'll be there to help you. He will take you out of the mud. He'll take you out of the bad place. And he'll give you a place to stand. And so, so the first, first part of embracing the holiness that God wants to build into each of our lives is to just get out of the places where we're stuck. To get out of the mud, to get out of the slippery places, to get out of the places where we don't have any traction or we're, we keep pulling us back and to stand in a much better place. So that's the first part of it, is to get unstuck. The second part, notice what he says again. He says, he, he says I waited patiently. He lifted me out of the slimy pit. He put my feet on the rock, something solid. And then it says he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. So what does that look like? What does that look like? Again, mostly what that new song looks like is learning to love, and learning to love in a way that is visible and profound. And if there's a, the best short definition I can come up with that, is loving in the way that God has loved us and the way that he wants us to do is taking another look at who and what matters in your life. You know, it's easy to love something you like, and a lot of times that's what love is. We, most of us have the privilege of loving people who just make us happy, and that's easy. That's easy to do. It's easy to love the songs that you like. It's easy to love the food that you like. It's easy to love your team when your team wins. Um, that kind of love is easy. But the kind of love that really transforms and that is really beautiful and forms the beautiful song that God wants us to be able to sing, it's mostly about changing up who and what matters. You know, one of the best definitions of love comes from Romans, where it says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that the people that God should have had the least to do with are the ones that he decided to make his own. That loving people, having God's real love in your life is mostly a matter of deciding who matters in your life and changing that up. That the people that are outsiders, the people that can't do anything for you, people that annoy you, to decide that those people's interests go first, that is profound. And you won't see that happening a whole lot. If you can begin to love with that kind of love, you will stand out. You don't have to wear a funny hat. You don't have to wear a robe. You don't have to carry incense with you when you go places or have people blow trumpets when you get out of the car. But if you want somebody to blow trumpets for you when you get out of the car, you can do that. But the point is, if you can begin to love people in that kind of transformative way, it stands out. It's a beautiful thing, and people will notice and will hear in ways that you couldn't hear before. Second is, is how we live, and how we live is mostly based on what we trust. You know, when I walked up on stage here, I didn't carefully check it because to see if I was going to fall through or something like that. I, I trust that the stage is okay. I turned on the mic not being afraid that I was going to get electrocuted. I don't think you can get electrocuted with this, but I don't, I saw a guy get electrocuted once and I don't want to take that risk. But the point is, a lot of how we live our life is based on who and what we trust. The reason Israel, when the Lord called Israel to trust him, so much of what made them distinctive 
was living in a way where they weren't going to trust just in their own efforts, but they were going to trust the Lord to bless them enough that they could take care of the poor in their community and it wouldn't bankrupt them. They could refuse to work a day of the week and they wouldn't lose out to their competitors who were working that extra day. They could leave some of their stuff unharvested and they knew they would be okay because if the poor were taken care of, then everybody was going to be taken care of. But that required a tremendous amount of trust. To leave literally money on the table required a tremendous amount of trust for the Israelites. And Jesus asks us to do the same thing. We live in a world that says that that hate and violence is much more powerful than love. And yet Jesus asks us over and over again to extend love rather than hate and violence. We live in a world where most, there's a lot of times where telling a small lie is a lot easier and probably more proficient than telling the difficult truth. But we trust that the Lord is going to see us through that and get us through, even though immediately the wrong thing looks like the right thing to do. We trust the Lord that if we do the right thing, we're going to be okay. That learning to live your life with that kind of trust, of knowing that I can do scary things, I can make the kind of crazy generosity that Nate talked about a a couple weeks ago, when we reach that kind of point and that kind of trust, that's magnetic, that's beautiful, that's something that people see and marvel at. And so that is a big part of that beautiful song. It's learning to love and it's learning to live in a way that characterizes trust. And if we do that, we will live differently than the people around us. We won't need uniforms. We won't need funny rituals. We won't need to do odd things with our hair. Um, Just the quality of how we love and how we trust will be enough that the people around us will see us. That it will be part of that more beautiful song than the song that any place else in the world has. Let me point out the final part here, though. And it says that many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in Him. See, that's a collective thing. It's happening in the context of other people. It's something we do together. It's something we do together. That this song that we sing, we never can sing it well enough on our own. Um, most, this is second service. Last week, John had us finish up just to show us the power of community. That we sang together, and this side sang, and then that side sang, and then we sang together. And it was like, you know, better, all of us together, right? And this is how it's supposed to go. The idea that holiness that God wants to build is just about me. I think we are so far, way too caught up in the sense of how this benefits me or how it goes wrong if I do it wrong and far too little concerned about how we do this together. So here's, here's a good example of what I mean by together. And this is a story of, of George. Um, George is his real name. But when I was a, a first place I was a pastor at, we had the unfortunate thing of there was a number of incidents of infidelity in the life of the church. It was a relatively small church, and in about two years, we had five incidents of in- infidelity. And probably not unrelated to the fact that my predecessor at pas- as pastor was caught in multiple infidelities. And so it was kind of a thing here. So. George was the end of the line of this. He was the last guy and, and just kind of lost his head and, um, and left his family and, and took up with the person that he'd been, he had been seeing and was gone for about two and a half weeks from his family. And I, I stayed in contact with him. He, he'd just begun following Jesus about a year before and he didn't know yet. He hadn't been around church long enough to know that if you're doing this, you're supposed to duck your pastor 
for a while. So I was able to, I was able to stay in contact with him. And then, and then he, he, he came back. And after he'd been back with his wife and family for a little bit, and I got him connected to some counselors and was talking with them myself, I, I asked him, I said, George, I was really interested to talk to him, not so much why he left, because th- those reasons are pretty stereotypical, but I wanted to know, why did you come back? And, and he, said, he, he said something really interesting. I mean, the first part just made sense. He just said, you know, I didn't want to be that guy, and I didn't want to do this to my wife. I didn't want to do this to my kids. But then he said something else, and this was really fascinating to me because he didn't have language for this. He just said, you know, he says, the weirdest part was is when I was gone, I felt like I was hurting our church by being gone. And I, and I think what George was just intuiting was exactly what we're trying to talk about here, that the life that God calls us to lead, it doesn't just affect us. That when I allow God to transform my heart, when I allow God to build that sense of holiness in me, to teach me how to love and to trust it doesn't just benefit me, it benefits all of you. That when we don't step up and grab what God wants to offer us, this, this chance to learn to sing a more beautiful song than the rest of the world can, we're not just cheating ourselves. We're actually probably cheating the people around us even more. We're cheating them of who we could be if we would just allow God to do this with us. Um, the psalm goes on to say exactly that. It says, you know, look, I didn't hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving health. It's our ability to talk about what God's done that so profoundly makes that difference. And it allows us to do it collectively that much better. So the thing is, is that God is, as it work in our life, he really does give us a more beautiful song of living one's life, of acknowledging the ways that we're broken, of trusting God with our future and with our present, of trusting not in our own abilities, but in God's mercy and God's grace and allowing him to transform us and to live out a life that's characterized by that love and that trust, that is really a beautiful thing. And whether you have a great voice or a bad voice, when you add your voice to the other folks around you, we really do begin to, as a people, sing a more beautiful song. Um, there's a great example of this, a great story. It's not from the Bible, it's from Greek mythology, but it does have Legos, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to be good. So within Greek mythology, there were these creatures called sirens, and sirens had beautiful singing voices. Um, they also had wings and beaks and the bodies of women. And so what the sirens would do is they they lived on this one particular island and they would sing their beautiful song and it would lure sailors coming by, which then would wreck their ships on the rocks. And then the sirens would come in, sweep down, and eat their flesh. Okay? So you could see that Greek men classically had some issues with women. You know, if this is sort of a a metaphor or metonym of how they understood male-female relationships, you could see the ancient Greeks had some issues. Okay? So, Odysseus, or Ulysses, um, heard about the Song of the Sirens. And when he was on his way back from the Roman or the Trojan War and getting lost around the Mediterranean, he decided to go by the island of the Sirens to see if their song really was that beautiful. But there they are, tearing people up. And so, Odysseus didn't want to be eaten by a siren. 
And so what he, he worked it out where he says, okay, look, you can tie me to the mast of the ship, and so I can't possibly get away, and then all of you guys, I want you to plug your ears with wax so you can't hear. So that way they could go by the sirens, and he could hear what it was really like, and, but he wouldn't get eaten, okay? So you see the picture here? So Odysseus or, or Ulysses did this. They, had him, they tied him up with ropes, and then they rode by the island of the sirens. Now, the sirens got really upset because they were used to eating the men who came by, but because he was lashed to the mast, he couldn't get away, and because his guys had their ears plugged with, with wax, they couldn't hear the song of the sirens, and so they just kept rowing, and he went by. And then finally he got away, and he said, yeah, it was awesome, and I totally would have gone to the sirens and been eaten if I hadn't been tied to the mast. Here's why I'm bringing up this story. If there has been a, a kind of a bad version of holiness for Christians up until fairly recently, it was we thought we had to go through life like Odysseus. That we thought that we didn't really trust and believe that the version of, God, of life that God has for us was really better. And so a lot of times, in real ways and metaphorical ways, we would just tie ourselves to the mast and not really experience the life that God has for us. That, that holiness was mostly about what we didn't do rather than what we did. But there's another version of this story that explains, I think, really well what God does want us to do. This one came from the Romans, and this is about Jason and his sidekick, Orpheus. The Romans conquered the Greeks, so they had like better versions of the Greek stories. <laughs> and so we still have the sirens in, in this story, but Orpheus was a musician. And so there he is with his, with his lyre. Um, six strings, just like the bass that Joey was playing today. Orpheus was a musician and a singer. And when Jason, who's sort of the Roman ca- counterpart to Odysseus, decided to go by the sirens, he didn't have to tie himself up and he didn't have to plug his, anybody's ears with wax. The reason was, is Orpheus knew how to sing a song that was more beautiful than the song of the sirens. And so as they rode by the island of the sirens, he didn't have to get tied up. He didn't have to close his eyes. They didn't have to plug their ears with wax. That what they were experiencing from Orpheus was so good, they, they couldn't hear the sirens at all. And because he had learned to sing a song that was far more beautiful than the song of the sirens, they went back unbound and happy. And friends, that's what God wants us to do. When he, wants us to build, when he wants to build holiness into our lives, he wants us to learn how to sing a song that is more beautiful than any other song in the world. We can't do it on our own. We do it collectively. But he does want us to learn how to sing that more beautiful song, the song that we know what it means to trust the Lord. We know what it means to love and be loved by him, to be saved and taken away. And it means that we've experienced what it means to get unstuck. It means that we have learned how to sing more beautifully. And it means in the end, especially, that we've learned how to do it together. 